science. Great to uh, be back with you again this week for another edition of uh, Love and Science. I look across from me, though, and I see an Andrew Glester looks absolutely shattered. Uh, What have uh, you been doing? I've been busy doing... uh, I've been at the Gravity Fields Festival up in Grantham, uh, famous uh, for being the place where Isaac Newton was born and nothing else. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Now, now look, um, just to let's just remind everybody, last week we were talking about the fact um, that uh, you have been working with your colleague who came, Tom, who came on the show last week um, uh, on a a, a show called The Lesser Sun. So just quick potted review of what that's about. The Lesser Sun is a story, well, it's not a story, it's it's a show, sort of a comedy lecture about... Um, the 400,000 people who got us to the moon. Right. And then the several hundred thousand people who are still working on things to do with the moon. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's what it's right. about. Right, and you've taken it to Grantham. We were talking about yeah. that last week. And then... Why are you? Is it just such an incredibly tiring show to do? Then, that you, <laughs> well, you know? it's 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 funny because when I answered that question last week, the show was about something else, right? So yeah. what happened was <laughs> we changed the show quite a bit. We oh. realised what the show was about sort of halfway through the first performance, and then reshaped it for the second one. So it was there was a lot. It's a funny thing when you make a show until you do it in front of an audience. Yes as I'm sure other people in the room will know. Yeah, yeah. Until you do in front of an audience, you can't really know how it's going to go. And, uh, yeah, we had, a, we had seven performances of it. It got better after the second one. The first one was great. second one was an absolute disaster. Oh, no. And then we had another, one, another performance of it. I can't believe it. it. I can't believe it was a disaster. It wasn't our fault, that one. Oh, right. It was the location. We right. got we, The place we were performing got swamped by young toddlers running and screaming. <laughs> Who were, as a appreciative as you might have hoped and that that clashed with the rather large i mean if i might say so myself the rather large crowd of people who'd come to see our show couldn't hear it because of the 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 children so anyway we we worked that out yeah you know all the trials and tribulations and then so i did that did seven shows of that and then very foolishly i thought what's a good idea to do now i know i'll do three hours of another show that i've made which is called the dive tent which is an audio journey down into the mariana trench um it's a very lovely thing but uh basically i I should be asleep now, as you can probably hear in my voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing very, very well. Well, it's, fortunately, I've got a backup this oh, week. Yes, that's good. Because I thought you might nod off while the show <laughs> is on. And that's why uh, we've invited um, Hannah Little to join us. Hi, Hannah. Hello. It's great to have you with us. And I, I need to tell everybody uh, who you are. Hannah is, a, so some of you will know that I do uh, a, a little bit of lecturing at, uh, at the University of West of England. Uh, they're very kind enough to allow me to uh, walk into a room and start talking to students for few days a, a year. Um, Hannah actually does a proper job up there and um, you, well, 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 welcome to Bristol. I know you've been here for a little while now. Um, uh, welcome to the UE course, but you've already been doing that for a, a little bit now. Um, but where, tell, tell us a little bit about you. What's your, what's your background? Where'd you come from? Um, well, it's quite a long story though. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We, um, we've got time. 
We've got so, a whole hour. <laughs> a whole hour. Here we go. <laughs> so um, I did uh, my... You're kind of a child. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll start... I'll start at my undergraduate, which was in linguistics, um, which surprises a lot of people at UE because I now work in an applied sciences department. Um, uh, but I did my PhD in computer science um, oh. in evolutionary linguistics. Um, but before I did my PhD, I, I worked quite a lot in science communication. Um, so I used to coordinate the STEM ambassador scheme up in the northeast of England. Right. Okay. So, so science, technology, engineering, engineering and, maths. and engineering and maths. So you, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was my job to kind of teach the people who work work in those subjects to speak to uh, primarily children. Yeah. Um, because uh, I, my job was getting them to go into schools and kind of uh, infusing the the youth. Yes. to go into STEM subjects. Yeah, yeah. And then I went off and did my PhD, and I loved it, um, but I kind of I missed um, having that very intense um, relationship with science communication and communicating science to yeah. the public. So that's a, that's a passion for you? Absolutely. Okay. Um, and, and throughout the whole of my PhD, I was doing um, kind of events um, and coding workshops for girls, um, and also um, I did quite a few stand-up comedy sets about research. Um, and then eventually... Um, that's led me to my job at UE, where I'm a, a lecturer in science communication. <laughs> well, I, I want to come back, uh, particularly to the to the comedy thing in in, in just a moment, because we, we we we're always interested in that on on, on, on this show. Um, but the the linguistics thing, you ju- you just slipped it in there that you you're a computer scientist who studied linguistics. Now that might sound odd to people. Uh, because uh, we sometimes it's not clear what the connection between those two things are. Linguistics is all about speaking languages. Computer stuff is all about making computer, you know, uh, logic systems and all that kind of thing. Where, where do they? Why do they come together? Um, so the lab where I did my PhD was an artificial intelligence lab, and I would say that the vast majority of artificial artificial intelligence research is about language and how we speak and and how we can. Um, basically get computers to process language in the same way that we do. Um, I was specifically looking at how language evolves. Um, and because we can't really know how language first started in our ancestors, because language doesn't fossilise, it's an ephemeral thing, um, The the best... Our best guesses can be derived from kind of what we do know and building um, kind of models of how that happened. Um, and so a lot of what the lab where I did my PhD do is is they create computational models of kind of have these little agents that speak to each other and then language evolves out of those interactions um and so we can kind of create our best guess of how that all happened wow Ah, that's fascinating territory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's a whole subject, all a big subject, all by itself. We could spend time on. Let's go to the the the, the comedy, um, because it's one of the, the one of the some people might think a strange phenomenon, which has happened over the last, um, I'd say, seven years or so, seven maybe less, where there are actually venues specifically all about science stand-up well they call, they call it science stand-up comedy or science stand-up um i mean why do you think this is this has come about why why why, why do you think we're, we're seeing this spring up all over the place um well so i think the main justification for it is trying to get audiences interested in going to see 
um, science talks that wouldn't necessarily go and see something that's advertised as a lecture. Yeah. Um, but they are likely to go and see something um, that's advertised as comedy. But um, I think largely what's driving it is um, a lot of academics' desires to be on stage <laughs> and be stand-up comedians. <laughs> so from what I've seen, it's kind of been pushed by this enthusiasm from the people who are doing it, and they really feel like they're improving their communication skills and they're yeah. improving yeah. Um, how they talk about their science and how it kind of relates to the public and 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 in standing on stage and kind of giving these kind of eight-minute-long stand-up sets um, it allows them to make all of those connections. And also, it's a, it's a real buzz. It's yeah. what we call type two fun. It's absolutely terrifying <laughs> while you're doing it, but afterwards, you really, really want to do it again. Kind of like a roller coaster. I like that. Type two fun. I love that. Most of my life is type two fun, I have to say. Yeah. Um, so, when you first stand up, you think, right, I'll have a go. I'll have a go at that. When you first stand up, or you know you're about to stand up, isn't it absolutely terrifying? Oh, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, I mean... Yeah. Where, where was the first time you, you did it? The first time I ever did it was in Newcastle. Yeah. In a little... In the basement of a pub. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the name of the pub. Um, but, yeah, it was absolutely terrifying. And what kind of an audience were they? Um, so that was a bright club, um, and these are... Um, Bright clubs are venues where um, people who are kind of self-identify as scientists or science communicators yeah. do these eight-minute sets. And the audience knows that everybody who's on the stage is kind of an amateur and they've never done it before. So yeah. they're very receptive. They're very sympathetic right. to what you're doing. So they haven't come on with vegetables. Or no, no. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we have an MC who's a professional comedian. And yeah. uh, when I did it in Newcastle, it was um, Helen Keane, who's absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Um, and so she was MCing for us. Um, and so I think the audience were largely kind of very science-interested people yes. um, who kind of wanted to learn about the, the, the science, but they were also very ready to laugh and they were very, yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. So um, uh, and Andrew was saying earlier on that, um, you know, they tried out, he, he and his friend Tom tried out a show. The first one didn't work quite as well as they wanted, so they, they started messing about with it and changing it. Is that your experience as well, that, that, that you, you, you're sitting there, you write a few jokes, you practice on your own, and somehow it's completely different when you stand up in front of an audience? Is that, does that ring true for you? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the way that comedy generally works is people have these kind of tryout nights and they um, they try material over and over and over and over again until they refine it and then they put it together as an hour and they call it a show and take it to the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah. Um, and so it's very <laughs> it's very similar for for science. Well, science comedy. It's just comedy. Um, you might you might write a joke and think it's the funniest thing in the world and get on stage and absolutely nobody. Um, laughs and you sort of have to yeah. scrap it. Yeah, um, yeah, but also, yeah. you know, one joke that might really land well one night might absolutely fall on its ass the next night and you can't really know until you're yeah. in the room and you're feeling it and you kind of feel where where you want to go with it. But, yeah. yeah, I don't think I've ever given the same show twice because you're always rewriting stuff yes. as, as you do it. And, yes. and, and do you ever make stuff up? On stage, yes, because I'm I'm not somebody who prepares a lot. I don't have a script and, and stick yeah. to it. Yeah. I, I ad lib quite a lot. I yeah. mean, both. We'd never do that on this show. Absolutely really. not. No. no. <laughs> As you can tell. <laughs> 
I do that when I'm lecturing as well, right? If, yeah. if if it turns if I'm in the room and I've kind of I obviously structure my lectures and I and I and I have the content there when I go into the room, but um, if kind of a specific subject is seems to be interesting the students specifically or um, kind of we go down a, a bit of a rabbit hole, but I see that it's very interesting and, and it's and it's um, really stimulating the students. We'll go down the rabbit hole. I don't mind going down rabbit yeah, holes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think I do the same thing on stage. If I start riffing on something and it's working in the audience, I can see the audience are enjoying it. I'm, yeah. I won't stop. Yeah. Uh, I've never done stand-up comedy. Sometimes I give talks and people laugh. And hopefully they laugh with me <laughs> and not at me. Yeah. And I, I try not to get that confused, unlike some presidents of the United States. <laughs> um, but uh, presumably, when you walk out in front of an audience, you, 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 that is a critical moment, isn't it? Because uh, they're, they're making their mind up whether they like you, whether they're going to go with you or not. I mean, is there anything special that you do at the top or some attitude that you go out with that kind of helps get that whole process going um i think it really helps to have a warm-up act um i did a yeah. set recently in bristol and i had no warm-up act and i really um i really felt it yeah <laughs> there yeah. was like suddenly it was my job to warm up the audience um where yeah. I, i'm i've never really experienced that before i've always yeah. had somebody on before me yeah. um so they go from cold to laughing yeah. and and it's your job to to start that up absolutely and i yeah. think that's why bright club works so well because we have a professional mc whose job it is to warm the audience up so kind of people yeah. who kind of stand up as scientists or academics who've never done comedy before yeah. that it's not their job to do it it's, it's somebody's already done it and they've kind of introduced this person as somebody who's never done it before and that kind of creates a welcoming environment for the comedian on stage as far as the audience are concerned um but for yeah so for me i always make sure i i, I load jokes quite a lot at the beginning yeah if i don't have a warm a, a warm pact yeah um but something also, you know is likely to work you've tried yeah. it out before yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and also i just i think my general attitude is uh people can see where i'm at when i walk on stage that i'm not kind of one of these holier than thou scientists I'm, yeah I'm very relaxed. Yeah, yeah. I've well, got this accent, you know. Yeah. Any, <laughs> any, anyone who meets you would would, would would see that. And 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 you, is there a kind of a hierarchy? Because the thing the thing about science stand up is well, it's it's comedy around the theme of science, but presumably for that very reason, it's part of the whole science communication agenda. We want people to talk more about science and so on. If there's a hierarchy for you, I know you want both. But but if you were to choose, what's more important to have a great evening or have people go out there interested in more bit more interested in science? Or is that an unfair question? Is this similar to the question of kind of if if you've got a really amazing joke but it's slightly scientifically inaccurate, <laughs> would you keep the joke? I hadn't thought of that. That's a very good question. Yeah. But I've got a, a perfect answer for this question, which is that I would always do the perfect joke and sacrifice the science. Yeah. Um, but then afterwards, once everybody's laughed, um, would say, actually, that was a bit inaccurate because of this, this and this, and just become really intensely nerdy about it. And then the joke kind of comes out in the fact that I'm a scientist who's being really pedantic. And yes. it's kind of, you kind of, you can play both angles of being 
this <laughs> this comedian, but also this really pedantic scientist yeah, at the other yeah. side, and and it kind of it works well on stage in a kind of comedy set, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. So I don't think you have to choose. No, I think one of the one of the scary things because you, you might know I, I sometimes talk to people about talking in public and and uh, and so on. And uh, I say to them, well, look, if you tell a joke and people don't laugh, you just keep moving, you know, because if you're presenting an idea, it doesn't really matter that much. It's nice if people laugh, but if they don't go. If you're a comic, if you're a stand-up comedian, people need to be laughing every 20 seconds or so. And that makes it particularly terrifying, I think. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and I would certainly say that there's been occasions when I've been halfway through a set and people haven't been laughing. Yeah. And then I've said to my friends afterwards, oh, there was a big gap in the middle there where yeah. there was no jokes. And they said, yeah, but people weren't laughing because what you were saying was interesting. And that was they were like uh, listening. And that's right. why they were yeah. acting as if you were a comedian. Because yeah. you kind of walk in this typewriter of being both a comedian, but also talking about academic stuff yeah. that people yeah. do find interesting. Yeah. And people, the audience don't always know how to act and yes. the comedian doesn't always know how to act and it yes. kind of creates this a slightly weird environment but I don't think it's un, unenjoyable because yeah. the feedback I've had is that yeah you shouldn't worry about that gap where nobody's laughing because the reason why they're so quiet is because they're listening to you because they want to hear what you have to say that is really interesting all right well Hannah you're gonna stay with us hopefully for the rest of the show yeah we're gonna talk about some science in the news and behind the news thanks so much for uh uh, joining us you're listening to uh, love and science on uh, bcfm that's uh, 93.2 fm to be precise or bcfmradio.com by the way you can go to bcfmradio.com and uh, look at any of the programs that that uh, are broadcast from uh, our station. Uh, you can go to Love and Science, look at our back catalogue, uh, but also any of the uh, any of the other programmes that uh, come from our award-winning station. Well, um, we're joined by um, Andrew and I, are joined by um, Hannah Little, and uh, we're going to have a look at uh, some of the science stories that are in the news. And the first one, of course, would be a big favourite for Andrew, um, it's to do with the planet Vulcan. Apparently, they found the planet Vulcan, the home planet of Mr. Yeah. Spock. I mean, and I should just stress this is not a program about science fiction. We actually mean this. The, the, the planet Vulcan has been located. Well, tell, tell us about it. Yes. I mean, it's a bit odd because I've been watching things about it on television for years. So it seems surprising that science has only just caught up with the science fiction. <laughs> um, no, so the, the, uh, the planet Vulcan. Um, is where, obviously, Spock comes from in Star Trek. And it is around a star in the Star Trek universe called 40 Eridani A. I don't know if that's how you say it. I've only ever seen it. Sounds good to me. Yeah? Yeah. You having that, Hannah? Is that okay with you? I don't don't know. I'm going to be honest, I don't know. Okay, that's fine. Um, Probably no one else does, so it's fine. We'll (laughs) carry on. We just Uh, say it with conviction. Yes, it's 40 Eridani A. Yeah. And um, it's a star in um you can see it with the naked eye from earth and the writers of star trek at some point during the the process of writing it decided that that was the star that vulcan was orbiting now what we found now in fact is that there is a planet actually orbiting that star ah so of course you would say that that was vulcan and the um, fiction came first yeah the fiction came first but i mean 
the Enterprise was up there, so that's how they found it. Yeah. I assume. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, they found it using the Dharma Planet Survey, uh, which is designed to hunt down relatively small planets around relatively bright stars. And uh, this planet is... Well, the star is not too, too dissimilar to ours. It's quite a similar star to ours. Not quite as bright as ours. Similar sort of... Um, uh, sunspots on it and that which tells you about the activity on it so it's it's not too active it's not throwing up throwing out too much um radiation into the into this its solar system for it to cause a problem for life on on a planet but the problem with this planet that we found is that it is a little bit too close to the star for it to be right uh, in what we call the Goldilocks zone, which is not too hot and not too cold. Even so, so they say it's a bit orange, yeah, because it's a little smaller and a bit cooler than our sun. But but the, this planet uh, is is too close. It's too close if we go by our current understanding of where liquid water could be. Right, but you might there there is there are if you look at it the other way. We've got Earth, Mars and Venus in the habitable zone and only one of them, as far as we know, is currently habitable. And there may be moons of planets outside of the habitable zone where those moons are in the habitable zone of that planet because the effect of that planet might warm the... The, or cool the the, pla- the 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 moon enough so that moon would then be in a habitable zone which isn't the habitable zone of the star but the habitable zone of the planet so it's possible that there are even areas of this planet that are um habitable um or it might just be that life there is is not quite as we know it is life you might say but not as we know it. <laughs> <laughs> very nice for some reason I had it in my head that Vulcan was on the other side of our sun. But ah. I don't know if I've just made that up in my head and I now need to. No. It's on the other side of our planet because it's only visible That's... from the southern hemisphere. Now, there was, a, there was a fellow years ago wrote a book called Worlds in Collision. His name was Velikovsky. Yeah. And Velikovsky thought that there was a planet like our... Earth, yeah. but on the opposite side of the sun, so see, we would, ne- we would never see was, it. Yeah, yeah. and um, he's, there's no evidence for that theory, I don't think. But, yeah, no, uh, that's uh, not Vulcan. There's a link, I got really distracted because there's a link in this article on space.com to the 10 best Star Trek episodes ep- ever. That's... <laughs> That's a difficult list to make, isn't it? What's number one? The ten best is The Measure of a Man, which is Next Generation. Number two, The Trouble with Tribbles. Uh, I mean, you can't go wrong with The Trouble with Tribbles. That's amazing. We have a guinea pig in our house called Tribble, yeah. named after the, the Tribbles there. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, there's only one way to find out what the top ten Star Trek episodes of all time are. Now, look, I'll, I'll indulge this just a minute longer. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Hannah, this always happens to us. But, um, Sorry. Uh, of your, okay, if we're talking about Star Trek, from what's your favourite series Ooh, of that's Star a Trek? Oh, you know, uh, Yeah, types of Star Trek. Um, they've all got so much to offer, apart from Enterprise. So it's, uh, it's very hard to pin that down. I would... I, I can't do that. I can't, the, the, my honest answer is... So you really don't like Enterprise? Uh, that's Well, OK, let me put it this way. If, the, basically what you're asking me is, what's, the fav, what's your favourite roast dinner that you've had? 
right? Oh, uh, yeah. And, and it's like, well, they're all great, yeah? Yeah. And then just once you had a bit of an iffy nut roast. It was good, yeah. but it wasn't quite up to the standard that you would want. It wasn't quite moist enough. Uh, and that would be Enterprise. Enterprise okay. is my favourite. Really? Yeah, but I'll tell you why. It's because... You um, like dry nut roast. <laughs> well, I'm a vegetarian and yeah. I do enjoy a nut roast. Um, <laughs> but it's because it was my... It was the first uh, series of Star Trek I had ever seen. I grew up watching Enterprise. It was the first thing I ever watched, uh, and I got really into it. Yeah. And so that like intense feeling of being really into a program, I first experienced with Star Trek in relation to Enterprise. Yeah. And therefore, it has this kind of really weird place in my heart. Yeah. And then it, I just upset people constantly by yeah. having that feeling. Yeah. I think that's okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's not as bad as those people who experienced the Phantom Menace and that thought that's what Star Wars was. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but joking apart, yeah, it's an, a, a wonderful discovery to find this, this planet orbiting the star that uh, Vulcan orbits in the Star Trek universe. There's only one way to celebrate, and that's to watch as many Star Trek episodes, all films, as you can in the next uh, seven years of your life. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, look, let's move on from that, because uh, some, some more uh, space news this, this uh, week. Uh, this is from, uh, well, the source we're looking at is from U- UPI, the uh, uh, news service. Titan, Saturn's largest moon, is home to massive dust storms, apparently. Um, and this, um, so we, sh- we should just set this in context. So, so there was a spacecraft that we sent out called Cassini. Cassini went around, it looked at various planets, it took particular interest in uh, Saturn um, and uh, some of the moons of Saturn. It's now crashed, hasn't it? It has. Uh, deliberately crashed, because mm-hmm. um, it's... it's uh, it, it, the mission is over but the date there's an enormous amount of data which is going to take years for astronomers to go through and uh, it turns out that they found that uh, one of the moons of saturn uh, titan uh, has these massive dust storms yes indeed it does um and it's fascinating actually speaking about these planets where um there are possibly habitable moons around them titan looks as though it's potentially uh, it could be habitable again with life but not as we know it because it does have liquid oceans and rivers on it it has weather uh, we've discovered it has a wind system yeah. which is quite active it's blowing dust around and yeah. you know, we can actually see uh, i believe they've been able to see effectively the um the dust around the 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 equator of titan yeah. it's being shaped by the winds and uh, the way that sand dunes are here on Earth. And uh, if, I believe if you kind of looked at Titan from a distance, you might go, oh, it looks a bit like Earth. But unfortunately, the liquid on it is liquid ethane, not liquid water. Ah. Um, so, again, possibly, so... Possibly, where, we, where there is liquid on Earth... Um, and not the kind of liquid you might think there would be life, like, for example, around the hot smokers, around uh, in, in the depths of the ocean where there's no light, the sun can't get to it, um, there's life there. It's possible there's life on these other planets. But this is about dust storms, and I've got all excited again about life on other planets. This is about dust storms on Titan, um, the, the moon of Saturn. Um, a wonderful place and a wonderful discovery. 
But it's just not the sort of thing you, you're going to be able to sort of dive into. Uh, no. Any, anything late, because it's going to be incredibly cold. Yes. Uh, but then you could get out and dust yourself off, get a dust bath, you know, like the birds do in your garden. Have you seen that? Like you could get one of those on Titan, turns out. Are you, are you into uh, uh, space, space science, Hannah? Uh, I enjoy a bit of space, but I wouldn't say it's my expert subject. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what about science fiction? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, you're going to be OK on this show. Love sci-fi. No problem. Is Arrival Absolutely. the best film of all time? Yes. Thought so. Oh, I go. have an arrival tattoo on my arm. Do you? Yeah. Well, um, let's, let's, let's hear about that later. A bit more music <laughs> on uh, BCFM. Uh, so we've been talking space. We're going to go back to space for uh, cool. just a moment or two. Um, so something which has happened almost in our backyard, which is we've landed on an asteroid, uh, a Japanese uh, spacecraft, chased a, an asteroid, landed on it, and um, uh, has been sending back pictures. And I think there's a load more pictures. Angry, angry. There are. There are uh, some absolutely wonderful photographs on the surface of this asteroid. Um, the thing that really struck me is, I probably should have realised this, but it struck me is the boulders all lying around the surface of the asteroid. I kind of think of asteroids as flying through space. You wouldn't think that there'd be just boulders lying on the surface of it, you know? It's, like, weird. Yeah. But obviously it's the gravity holding them in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, just... It is weird. Just, I, I, mean, I don't know what I would imagine. I, I just thought it was, like, a big lump of rock. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's got some interesting stuff going on. Yeah, no, it's brilliant, isn't it? I don't, I, I, would re- I don't really know what to say apart from get online and look at them. I did feel slightly when you started that that we had landed on an asteroid and were broadcasting live from it, <laughs> which was not sadly. That would be an interesting show to do, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, have you got a link there where people can look? Uh, it's, the, it's the Japanese Space Agency. It is. There's the Japanese Space Agency. There's a there's um, there's well, you can find them on the Japanese um, Space Agency Twitter thing. So that's JAXA G A X A. Yeah, um, uh, J A X A. So yes, yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah. what I meant to say. Yeah, J A X A. J A X A. And uh, if you can't find it by doing that, um, just search for rovers on asteroid, and uh, that's nothing to do with Bristol rovers. So don't worry, Bristol City fans. You can also Google that. All right. Okay. Now I don't know. Uh, are you are you keen TV watchers? Um, uh, either of you, I don't, I don't. It's, it really, I, the reason I ask this question is because I meet with students every year, and we talk about science on radio and science on television. Um, they, and I'm f- frequently being told, no, uh, we don't watch uh, television much. You know, we 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 watch loads of YouTube and uh, occasionally a bit of a bit of telly, which we uh, which we download. Netflix, Amazon, um, radio, no, not. Not that much, really. We just listen to music. We, we we stream. However, we do know that still millions and millions of people. Fortunately, otherwise I wouldn't have a job. Uh, listen, <laughs> listen to uh, radio and, uh, and and television. Um, one one of the things that I love because I find it's a fantastic resource is to go to the um, BBC iPlayer site. And, you know, some fabulous documentaries there. And there's one out at the moment um, about Hedy Lamarr. And um, 
Uh, just let me see if I can see what, what this is actually called, because we have put it down. It's called Hollywood's Brightest Bombshell, the Hedy Lamar story. So um, I don't know if either of you, you must have heard of Hedy Lamar, <laughs> the, the uh, actress. She's born uh, November the 9th, 1914. And they say these are ridiculous things that they say about people, that she was the most beautiful woman in the world. How on earth would anybody ever judge <laughs> such a thing? That's insane. But of course, that was the that was the Hollywood hype. Uh, she became an actress. She was born Hedwig Hedwig Eva Maria Kiesler. I know she. Li- I don't know where she was born, but she. I knew that when she was young, she lived in uh, in Vienna. So born in Austria somewhere. She died January nineteenth, two thousand, and she was incredibly famous um, for Scandal. Um, uh, for being beautiful, for being a sort of a femme fatale kind of character, married six times, divorced six times. This is all great fodder for tabloids and <laughs> uh, and glamour magazines, those 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 kinds of things. But it turns out she was an inventor and um, quite a serious inventor. In fact, she was uh, initiated with a, a, a friend of hers, a chap called George Antill, into the National Inventors Hall of Fame uh, as late as 2014 um, uh, because uh, she did some work which basically uh, helped us develop Bluetooth technology. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's astonishing. And if you said, now, who do you, who do you think, you know, a famous person, who do you think would, nobody, no one would have come up with the name Hedy Lamar no. unless, unless you really did uh, know better and, 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 and so on. So it's an absolutely um, amazing story. And I, I, I definitely encourage you uh, to um, go to BBC iPlayer and uh, watch this. It's about 90 minutes. Hollywood's brightest bombshell the Hedy Lamar story. It's quite timely as well because it's Ada Lovelace Day next week. Yes. Yes. Where yeah. We have an event at UWE that I'm organising. Tell us about we're, it. We're what a getting... good, good uh, segue there. <laughs> um, I'm, well, we, we're doing a Wikipedia editathon. So basically, um, the vast majority of contributors to Wikipedia who, who edit all of the pa- um, pages and write them all, um, the vast majority of them are, are men, and the vast majority of pages about people in general are about men. Um, and that's especially... Um, biased in sciences and, and in STEM, uh, so science, technology, engineering, maths. Um, yeah. So what we're doing is we're going to get a bunch of people from the department, uh, the applied sciences department, and obviously um, they know a lot about the, the influential people in their field, um, and we're going to try and diversify um, the, the profiles on Wikipedia to try and get more profiles up there that are um, from more, um, well, f- specifically for for. for more women because that's what Ada Lovelist is all about um, but also um, from more BIM scientists um, yeah. and uh, scientists from countries that aren't the UK and the US yeah <laughs> yeah, it sounds great I mean we, 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 we always try and acknowledge Ada Lovelace Day on, on the programme here and and um, uh, the, the interesting thing, again, if you were to say to people, who do you think came up with the first algorithm for a computer, you know, or the, or the, or, or the first uh, piece of, uh, um, uh, what, what would you call it, programming for a computer, people wouldn't, wouldn't think, oh, I wonder what his name was. <laughs> and it turns out it was uh, most likely uh, Ada 
Lovelace, working with, now was it Charles, Bo- Babbage. Charles Babbage, who invented the Babbage engine, which was uh, probably the first computer, except it never worked because he never actually built it, uh, but he designed it, so in theory it would have worked, and she designed uh, the first programme to go with it. You know the editing of Wikipedia thing? It sounds like a great thing. Um, I noticed that the White House had been recently editing Wikipedia. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's seen that story. I'm not going to say too much about it because it's a bit rude. But if you go on Twitter and put White House Wikipedia edit, you'll find a rather amusing story about what they did after the Brett Kavanagh thing. Yes. Quite entertaining. Just have a okay. little look at that. <laughs> OK, thanks very much. So here we go. So we've got we've got uh, the, the, the heady, uh, the mass story, so I won't say a great deal. Oh, well, well, there was one other piece of um, information that I found fascinating. Apparently, of course, she had many, uh, many relationships um, inside and outside of her, her marriages, her many marriages. I don't know why you get married six times, by the way. I don't know why, why you know, once, maybe twice, but, you know, six times strikes me as missing the point. Um, <laughs> but uh, she, she had a relationship with Howard Hughes, uh, the famous, um, very eccentric, very rich aviator. And he was obsessed with speed getting his aircraft to fly faster and faster and she helped him out because she did a a study um studying the fastest birds and she says you research the shape of the fastest birds and the shape of the fastest fish so the fastest swimming fish and she came up with a kind of hybrid design which he then incorporated into the shape of his planes awesome. it was all about streamlining <laughs> this again, yeah. Hedy Lamarr yeah. the fam- the, is, the is the Bluetooth there. thing related to her work on um, torpedoes during the war is that uh, yes it, it is, is. Oh, okay. so what happened was that the Ger- thank you for that because I nearly forgot to say it uh, the Germans were jamming uh, the signals so there was lots of jamming going on. We couldn't control our torpedoes, apparently. And she said, well, look, what we can do is we will develop this system where we will switch um, frequencies. I think it was called something like frequency switching or something. And, and so very rapidly you change the frequency at which your torpedo is picking up uh, the guidance signal. And it worked. And it, and, and, and it beat the jamming. Well, look, I tell you what, we're very short on time uh, for the rest of the show. So I was going to play some music here, but I'm not going to because I want to go uh, straight into uh, another story, which is all about owls. And um, I'm a big fan of owls. Um, I was once driving uh, up... Uh, near Langridge in Bath, just driving along the road very late, uh, well, early in the morning. Um, and I stopped in front of what I thought thought was a block of wood sitting in the middle of the road. And uh, I got up to go and move the block of wood, which then did a kind of somersault. <laughs> it jumped off from the road and flew past me. And it was a, it was a barn owl. And it was just the most magical, the magical uh, thing that uh, I can think of. And um, so the uh, British Trust for Ornithology is asking people to listen out uh, for the distinctive sound of the of the tawny owl. 
And uh, the, the, the reason is that uh, they're very concerned about its numbers. Uh, bird lovers are being urged to give up 20 minutes every week to listen out for the twit-to-woo of the tawny owl. So what I'm going to do is um, play you the sound of the tawny owl. Here it is going to come right now. And there are two calls that you'll hear in here. And I spoke to uh, Claire Boothby, who explains uh, it. I'll tell you what she told me in just a minute. But... This is what it sounds like. So there's the characteristic call of the owl with a sort of screechy noise. <laughs> A key, key wick, as it's described to me, this. And uh, Claire Boothby says that the hooting sound is a terrier... That noise there is a territorial call by the males. And uh, females can do this as well. But the sharp key wick, that noise, is a contact call which is often made by the females. There we go. And uh, the, I the idea, anyway, of this story is uh, to uh, listen out uh, for the call. And um, I, they, 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 Claire Boothby says you can even do it from the comfort of your bed. Light pollution urbanisation are thought to be impacting uh, populations. The conservation status of the tawny owl recently changed from green to amber, signalling a growing concern for the species. Now, from the 30th of September until the 31st of March, um, they are running this, the BTO are running this survey. And um, they're saying it's not essential that members of the public listen every single week, uh, saying that any uh, data is useful, even locations where an owl call cannot be heard, as this indicates where the species is missing. I've, I've got a top tip for you on that one. Yeah. Um, if you go outside and listen for 20 minutes on the dark night for a tawny owl, by the end of your 20 minutes, your eyes will be perfectly dark adapted to look at the stars. Ah, so you can... Uh... I was going to say you could kill two birds with one stone, but that's no, such that's, an inappropriate thing to say don't <laughs> at, this, <laughs> at this time. Yeah. So that so so there, there you go. And um, uh, I was the 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 story that I really wanted to get to before because we had a great time um, talking about science comedy and the Star Trek and all kinds of things like that. Is that I wanted I wanted to talk about slugs. And um, uh, one of the reasons is that um, we were watching the television the other day and um, my partner appeared on a television programme. I didn't know about this. Uh, apparently she'd been in a garden centre and somebody walked up to her and said, what, what did she do about slugs? <laughs> and uh, suddenly there she was on the one show talking about slugs. So there you go, that's, that's, that's Becky. See, she's a dark horse. Becky, I've been on television. What have been doing today? I've been on television. Um, and um, so there's been a survey about home remedies about slugs. Now, talking about slugs, I, I must just say it's fantastic. <laughs> We've got John Ford in the studio. Hi, John. It's great to have you with us. Sorry, no, no, I don't know why, why I made that link in my head. That's just... I, I it's, it's totally inappropriate. It's so comedy influence. Totally inappropriate. Um, but uh, do you 
Do you have trouble with uh, slugs in your garden? No, but if you've looked at my social media feed, you will realise that I've got trouble with badges. They've wrecked my lawn. Really? My lawn looks like a, a practice for yeah. a golf club. Because they, they, they dig directed. lawns up, don't they? Because when, when they can't find um, soft, juicy things to eat, they actually get underneath lawns. Well, they're looking for leather jackets at this time of the year, which is right. the... the pupae of the crane fly, which is the dark uh, legs, which is coming uh, out this time of the year. Ah, uh, so right. That's what they're looking for, yeah. They're looking for those grubs. They've completely wrecked my lawn, yeah. Oh, I no. even tweeted Brian May and asked him for some advice. But Did you? Did he reply? I, no. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be good. Yes, because he's a big badger. Oh, he's a big badger big fan. Big badger yes. supporter. He, he would like me to... Uh, he, all he'd want me to do is put more grass seed down for them to yeah. make the lawn grow. To is that, well, that's presumably what you're doing, right? You're just what? helping the badgers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I, I don't You're not culling the them, are you? I've, I've, I've come up with a cure, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't want to hijack here. No, no, it's no, tell it. No, well, do I, tell I've us. Been, I've been researching how to get rid of badgers, and the most effective thing is male urine. Oh, oh right. And where do you I'm get your male where do you no. get your male urine from? Well, where'd you get yours from? <laughs> 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 so I've I've been I've literally been uh, decanting it into a, uh, a sprayer. You dilute it four to one and yeah. you spray all around the perimeter of the garden. And it has helped. And the areas in which I've not sprayed, because uh, I've got one and a half acres, so it's quite a lot. The, the areas I've not sprayed, um, uh, of course, the badgers are, are attracted to that area, so it, does, uh, it is working. Do you find working. that your family are using the garden less as well? <laughs> <laughs> well, my son said you should get my mates around, have a barbecue, and supply us with a load of beer, and then yeah. we'll supply you. With... <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I just can't wait for a nice hot sunny day. <laughs> to be in your in your garden, <laughs> you guys around. Well, look, well, look ju- just quickly. Uh, uh, you know, everybody's got their own favourite remedy for getting rid of slugs. So, uh, grit, eggshells. Um, bits of copper, pine bark, wool pellets. Well, um, the Royal Horticultural Society has tested all of these things. They they did a bit of this on the on the one show, and it turns out none of them work. None of them. None of them work. Oh. So the thing to do is to find uh, um, uh, use nematodes and things like that. Oh, okay. but, uh, yeah. Anyway, look, the, jump. There was another cure, by the way, as well yeah. to get rid of badges, and yeah. that is to put a radio. Uh, this is absolutely true. You can go onto the uh, how to get rid of badges, various sites. Put a radio outside and play the radio all night. They don't like the the sound. <laughs> so maybe we could put this show on repeat all night long. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Well, look, it's been uh, great having your company. Um, it's been uh, a real pleasure to uh, have uh, Hannah Little on the show. So thanks, Hannah, for joining us. You will come back, won't you? Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. All right. And, uh, well, uh, from Andrew and I, as usual, don't forget to stay uh, tuned uh, to BCFM because after the news, John Ford is very wonderfully uh, getting uh, Bristol home. And uh, have yourselves a very good evening. Don't forget to join us again next week. Science.